Welcome to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. We're having a great time here at TuneIn, our new production facility that overlooks the, uh, well, I guess the San Francisco uh, giant stadium. That's what I see. Um, but this is definitely a nice new change for the Michelle Meow Show. Today we have a special guest in studio. Uh, while we're testing out this entire facility before we get our phone systems in, we're kind of looking to local dignitaries, icons, contributors to the LGBTQ community in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so I'm very lucky to have my friend Bruce Bidette here with me in studio. Bruce, welcome. Uh, good morning. And um, yeah, the neat new uh, digs you have here. <laughs> it's definitely an upgrade from, from where... I was at, which, you know, was uh, a nifty, uh, awesome attempt at a studio. It, it, it really was a great studio. It was a multimedia studio. We did great. Um, you know, it just, this is, this is very different. There are millennials outside in jeans and, and t-shirts, and they give us uh, drinks, uh, different kinds of drinks to drink versus, you know, the Alhambra water dispenser that I was used to at Coffee TV. Yeah, when I was living over in Hawaii, I wanted to have a, like an interview show uh, with the uh, uh, University of Hawaii radio station. But I realized that, you know, just how many out gay people could there be in Hawaii because it was a relatively closeted place, at least back in the early 90s still. And, uh, you know, convenience. So trying to find people that I could actually talk to um, but, you know, even here in San Francisco, I mean, if, if I have to try to figure out how to get out to, you know, Barnville or whatever street that was way out there, as opposed to just getting off, you know, public transportation right in front of this place by the baseball stadium, it's so much easier. So the lazy, you know, people that want to come to be interviewed, <laughs> this will be easier. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, I'm, we're really lucky to have you here. Uh, people should really be able to see you. You're one of the most colorful people I know, not just your personality, but I love the way you dress. And and if you want to know what I'm talking about, you should just kind of, you know, go to your, your his Instagram handle, uh, uh, which is... Simply my name. Um, and... Um... People kind of get the pronunciation of my name a little bit wrong. It's Sorry. a French name. Uh, it's Beaudet. So it's B E A U D E T T E. Uh, Bruce Beaudet. Perfect. And, yeah. Thank you. Um, you describe yourself as a costume artist, photographer, GLBTQ historian, queer activist, and Chihuahua companion, which I know for sure you are a Chihuahua companion because your Chihuahua is here. Um, <laughs> let's get your story. I mean, many people who follow you and people who are friends, uh, like myself, you know, we get to see Bruce all over San Francisco. You're at all the major events, um, and you represent the community well, but I would love to hear your story from, from your mouth. You know, uh, what is your story? Well, um, I, uh, when I was first coming out, uh, was way back in the 70s. And, you know, back then there, you know, we weren't that far away from 1969 and the Stonewall uh, uh, uprising in New York City in June of 69. And so things were still developing. Uh, 
gay people would read basically any book that was available because there wasn't, you know, hundreds of thousands of titles. There were just a hundred titles at one point or less. And so all of us were reading the same thing and all of us were doing the same thing. And so every time something would happen, it would be significant. Uh, in 1975, when I was in high school, uh, I went out to get the, uh, that week's Time magazine. And um, I didn't know that what was going to be waiting for me on September 8th of 1975 was the first identified uh, gay person on the cover of Time, uh, Sergeant Leonard Matlevich, who was in the, Air For- in the Air Force. And the ACLU had been wanting to have someone challenge the anti-gay, I guess, basically at the time, or perhaps also lesbian, um, you know, historically, the more obvious members of our community kind of got, got the wrath of, of you know, authorities. Um, but anyways, Leonard was the, the first one ever acknowledged on the cover of Time. Um, and that kind of started me, you know, toward, you know, connect, kind of connecting better with, you know, starting to connect with the community and seeing you know, iconic things and finding books and bookstores. And uh, when I moved to San Francisco, um, I just started meeting, like, people that, uh, kind of well-known people. One thing I should add, I I guess, was kind of a dream that I once had uh, right before moving to San Francisco. I had moved from Des Moines, Iowa, where I went to my first gay bar and where I saw that Time Magazine cover, up to Minneapolis and the month before, sorry, the month of, uh, that I moved to San Francisco in October of 1978, PBS aired uh, for the first time, any time, uh, a national uh, queer positive uh, documentary called Word is Out by uh, Peter Adair, Nancy Adair, uh, uh, Jeffrey um, uh, Epstein was involved in it, who's went on to, you know, to get a bunch of Academy Awards for his Harvey Milk documentary and his Names Project documentary and, um, sorry, Rob Epstein. Um, And when I was living in Minneapolis, I watched this thing that I didn't know was unique. To me, the, this documentary about gay men, lesbians, uh, lesbians in the military in the 40s, effeminate men, Butch lesbians, femme lesbians, um, Adair and the group really wanted to get a really diverse group of people. And the diversity of this documentary was just amazing. I mean, there was, you know, Asian people represented, African-American people represented, older people represented, um, Harry Hay and John Burnside, who way back in... um, the late well around the same time they started the radical fairies but harry hay in 1950 started the mattachine society and he's also featured in the documentary and when i was watching it on tv back in minneapolis i was just like wow i wish my life could be you know half as cool as what i'm watching here on tv not knowing that peter dare and his mariposa group that put the film together uh did it here in san francisco and a lot of people that were used in the film lived here or spent a lot of time here. And uh, one person was this woman named Pat Bond who played 
uh, in a stage play once I got here and saw her doing a thing called Gertie, Gertie, Gertie is Back, Back, Back about Gertrude Stein. And she was amazing in the film. Um, this effeminate gentleman um, named Teddy Matthews tells a really cute story in the film about how uh, he decided to go to a dance class wearing a Barbie, a Ken doll wearing a Barbie ballet outfit. And he became like one of my best friends. Wow. Wow. So it sounds like you really found a little bit of yourself or a piece of yourself within the LGBTQ community through the arts in, yeah. in a lot of ways, which, in you know, now it's considered history and the arts. What about your first, like, gay experience? My first gay experience or uh, going to a gay <laughs> bar. <laughs> uh, I was going to I was going to leave that open for your own interpretation. You know, some people see it as a coming out story. Some people see it as a first sexual experience. Uh, some people see it as, you know, falling in love with, um, uh, yeah, well, you know, a gay icon now or or something like that or watching Broadway. What What was it for you? Well, I guess it would have been when uh, I was hanging out with a friend of mine that, that worked at a um, amusement park near where I lived. And him and another guy, um, Greg and Rick, um, were going to a bar and an article just appeared in then the Des Moines Tribune about uh, gay bars and gay life in Des Moines. And so when they mentioned that they were going to the City Disco Park, I knew where they were going but I pretended like I didn't. And I was like, so tell me more about, the, about this bar we're going to. And I was like trying to pretend like I was, you know, <laughs> clueless or something, I guess. And they said it was a gay bar and they asked, and they said, is that okay? And I was like, yeah, that's okay. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, I always laughed about the memory of, you know, is there anything you should warn me about? And they were like, don't go in the bathroom by yourself. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> But you wanted to go to the bathroom, maybe. <laughs> it was like kind of a weird warning, but you know that's where, you know, and and back then, uh, and and still, I guess you'd you'd say, you know, such a major part of our organizing and, you know, the the folks that are have to fight for us, uh, kind of the social scene was ran by the drag queens, mm-hmm. and so they were the kind of glue there. And um, I ended up getting on the wrong side of one and then got in some social trouble. And <laughs> Were you, you know, alienated and ousted by drag queens? <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, it's, it's just some, you know, like a friend, you know, had an issue with a friend at one point and suddenly found myself kind of less socially popular or less invited or something. I don't know what it was, but, you know, and then I sort of, initially had developed sort of uh you know a a a sort of a bias i guess so when i got to san francisco i had a vague vague bias but just based on you know you know i was young i was 19 and um i, I dated someone for seven and a half years who uh was very involved with the imperial court system and all kinds of things uh, uh, a gentleman from hawaii of filipino descent and he, you know, we crossed all kinds of, you know, he was involved in lots of gay Asian things as well as the gay pride parade. He was a, mm-hmm. um, a one of the board members of SF Pride at one point. 
and uh, so young ideas that I might have had, you know, went went away real fast because, you know, some some guys that did drag were nice, and some guys that did drag were were not so nice, and it wasn't because they were drag queens; it was because they were human beings who I had chemistry with or didn't happen to have chemistry with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. I wanted to ask you about uh, just kind of your thoughts on... Actually, before I get there, I, I want to stay on getting to know Bruce uh, a little bit more. You've been featured in magazines. You've been featured in newspaper articles. And again, like you're a local celebrity. And some people see you as a local celebrity because of your costumes and the way you dress and the way you put yourself together. Um, you're noticeable. There really is no other Bruce in San Francisco. And then some people, you know, know you from activism within the community and then others follow you for the great information. I think we've just demonstrated in the last 10 minutes or so how knowledgeable you are about LGBTQ history. Um, You came here to San Francisco at 19 years old. So, you know, and you've stayed. You, and you, so you've been here for a while, and there's so much that people keep talking about uh, how much it's changed. But before we start talking about the changes, I wanted to hear from you just kind of what were some of the greatest memories, you know, being here in San Francisco and being a part of the community? Um, and if you could share some of that. Well, certain stuff when I first got here was, you know, way above my head. I got here at the end of October in 1978. And I just didn't know anything about San Francisco. And so within the month of the time that I got here, the Jonestown incident had occurred where uh, Jim Jones um, in Jonestown, when he took his followers away from San Francisco, uh, within a month of my arrival here, 900 people were dead at Jonestown by that forced suicide thing with the Kool-Aid. And then a week and a half later, or whatever it was, uh, Dan White went into City Hall and killed two people I'd never heard of before. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it was a mayor and it was, it was a supervisor. And, you know, of course, all the news was about him being gay. But I didn't, I had no idea who they were at that point. And we should mention that's George Moscone and Harvey Milk. Yeah. So, uh, to me, it was just too new. And so when they had their candlelight march for uh, that. Um, I didn't participate because I just didn't understand what was going on. Uh, a year later, uh, I caught up quickly, and I was on a streetcar uh, going with a friend out to SF State, and some friends were in a giant march heading down towards uh, City Hall and saw me and invited me to join, and my friend said, yeah, go with them. And that was the uh, white night ride. Mm. And so I was, you know, part of that procession and ended up right on the steps watching people throw rocks through the window, throw lit things through the window. Uh, I was standing on the newsstand right at the steps of City Hall on the uh, Civic Center side of the, the building, not the Van Ness side. And uh, it was right in the middle of it. And then the police marched in at one point. Uh, apparently it was, con- they must have been considered too dangerous. And were ordered to march back out again. And then someone started rocking a police car, and it seemed like it was going to become more. And so someone encouraged me to take this friend I was there with at that point, a woman, and get out of Civic Center. 
And as we were heading through the park area where the water was at the time, that big pool thing, uh, which no longer exists, uh, we ran into tear gas. And um, luckily some folks that were experienced with how to deal with tear gas, at least back then, using water, um, helped us clean in our eyes. But then we had a, a gentleman on a motorcycle, a cop, a cop on a motorcycle tried to run us over. And so we had a, I had to drag my stunned, unbelieving friend, uh, Olga was her name. Oh, my. Yeah, in between cars to get away from this determined police officer. And recently, a year or two back, I went to a thing at the LGBT, um, I'm sorry, the GLBT Historical Society, and they had some old film footage. And I'd only ever known of police cars being lit on fire. But as I watched the footage, I saw there that evening a police motorcycle on fire. And I just kind of was sitting there smiling, thinking, please let there be that motorcycle that tried to hit me and the old guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in looking back, I mean, do you see the police's response to the White Knight riots? Do you see that um, as lack of leadership, as, uh, you know, trying to control or, or take control um, from, I guess you could say, a militaristic perspective versus allowing for what we normally will look back as history, will be proud of San Francisco's radical and progressive views. We look at um, historical incidents such as White Knight Riot, and the murder of Harvey Milk, we talk about it, especially in mainstream media, as, you know, San Francisco's response being um, a big part of, you know, the liberation movement and this call to action for uh, LGBTQ equality. You were there. I mean, what did it feel as if uh, the city and, and, and leadership was supportive of that? Or too hard to tell. I mean, it also... When well, the city is is rioting in chaos, like what do you do? Well, it's a, it, yeah, it was strange. I mean, it's it, you would have thought that like when the police were marched in, stopped, and you th- I, I assumed that something was going to be happening with them dispersing us or something. But I think they decided it was too dangerous. And the film footage that the historical society uh, showed us, um, the cops are being kept at bay as we lit somewhere between 12 and 17 police cars on fire that evening, um, which I was, I actually was gone by that point in a cab heading off to my friend's Olga's house and then went with her roommate over to Castro Street. And by the time I got there, um, things had moved over there. And that's, that was actually the response by the cops. The cops weren't responding at, at Civic Center. They were, I, Intelligently, I guess, you know, with the fear of getting injured by, you know, angry protesters, just stand back, don't get hurt. Um, but, you know, I, it seems reasonable that they would be angry, and they went over to Castro Street, and then Supervisor Harry Britt was trying to talk them, calm them down, but uh, they were still angry, and they tried to get into the old uh, Midnight Sun, which was on Castro Street which was impossible for us gay guys to get into unless we stood in line. And the cops also couldn't get into it. Um, So they went back down to the corner of Castro and 18th, and the the bar, which is now Harvey's, was called the Elfin Walk. 
and that's always been a bar full of big windows and easy access. And so the cops easily got in there and proceeded to just tear it apart. And, you know, in response to, you know, you, 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 we burned, you know, somewhere between, you know, up to 15 police cars and they break up one gay bar, um, wrong, but Mm -hmm. you know, you can kind of, if someone punches you, you're going to punch back or something like that. Sure. Sure. Uh, And I can't wait to ask you kind of what your thoughts now in regards to, you know, police, law enforcement, the city of San Francisco, and the politics. But we're going to take a quick short break. Uh, Michelle Miao, we're speaking with San Francisco LGBTQ cultural influencer and an icon and a good friend of mine, Bruce Baudette. We're going to take a quick short break. When we come back, we'll hear more from Bruce. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. Welcome back to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. We're here at Tune In. It's our third week or so here, um, and it's been uh, it's been a great start. And like I mentioned earlier, we don't have our phone systems yet, and so the interviews have been light. It's also been reaching out to our local San Francisco community. So I hope everyone out there on Progressive Voices who's listening around the world or around the country is enjoying a piece of history or a piece of San Francisco and these conversations that are actually important to the national conversation as well. My guest today in studio is Bruce Baudet, and he's here to talk about not only his own experiences here in San Francisco, but his opinions and his thoughts as a cultural influencer, as I called him right before the break in um, talking about LGBTQ topics and issues. So Bruce, uh, 
you know, in part one of our interview, we talked a little bit about San Francisco history. You were there during the White Knight riots. You came here, you know, in 78 um, as a young, young gay guy. You've seen a lot in San Francisco. And the conversation now is that there are so many young people who are speaking out about the changes of San Francisco. But I would say the changes we've experienced in the last five years, because some of these uh, liberal activists are, you know, they're, they're young transplants themselves. So I feel like I want to hear from you as far as like articulating what some of the biggest changes have been through the years that you've been here, which is more than five years, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I moved here in 1978, uh, born in Minneapolis, uh, went to my first gay bar in Des Moines, Moved here in 78, uh, lived here from 1978 through 1990, uh, moved to Maui, then to Oahu, then to Los Angeles, and moved back to San Francisco in 96, and I've been back ever since. Um, I've had the good luck of, for some reason, always bumping into uh, people that, you know, loom big in the queer community, you know, from when I first moved here you know, meeting folks from, like I talked about, you know, earlier from the movie uh, Word is Out, uh, recently becoming friends with Rob Epstein, who's a two-time Oscar winner uh, for films that he made after working on this project with Peter Adair and Nancy Adair. Um, but, you know, just all kinds of people through time, uh, the wonderful Cleve Jones, uh, Harry Hay, his, part, his longtime partner, John Burnside, they were together for 40 years. Uh, Harry Hay first started working on activism back in 1950. Um, the man who I saw on the cover of Time Magazine, Leonard Matlevich, I was up at Guerneville and uh, without any sort of, you know, you know, saying, making a big deal of who he was, um, I and a date of mine hadn't planned on staying in Russian River, where so we we're going to come back to San Francisco, and some guy named Leonard invited us to stay at his home and. Said he had a air mattress and some blankets and pillows and things, and the guy I was dating had been in the military and asked Matlevich, "Is that your last name?" And Leonard Matlevich said, "Yes," and <laughs> I was just blown away. In the same way that you know, having read a book about Harry Hay, uh, a book called "The Trouble with Harry" by Stuart Timmons, um, I was down in Los Angeles, and I stepped out of an office to pay a bill and. An old man walked by, and I looked at him, thinking it was maybe Harry Hay, and I saw a hearing aid, which the book talked about him having a hearing issue in one ear, and I ran after him, and sure enough, that was Harry Hay. <laughs> and those kind of things have always been part of my life here, but also one of the things which has been an issue with me for the last couple of years, um, well, since about 2010, but a more specific thing since 2015 is that, in, in a sense, like when I had a radio show in Hawaii, um, I didn't want to call it a gay radio show. I didn't want to have gay be part of the title because, to me, the word gay had become something which I and other people were identifying as something that was only white, white yeah. male, that gay was white male. Um, and I'd been educated enough to know that a lot of people didn't feel that you know, that that gay fit them because they weren't white gay males. 
especially the folks that were controlling everything at one point, magazines and media and, and all that stuff, that everyone were gay white males. Um, plus, I discovered in 2010 that a lot of people didn't know queer history. Um, then in 2015, um, on January 1st of that year, um, I wanted to post a New Year's Day posting. And I came up with an album cover for a man named Billy Preston. And Billy Preston is someone that I had put into an album on Facebook that included gay people that had been involved with the Beatles. And Billy Preston was a gay black man. And uh, he had been introduced to the Beatles when he was 16 years old by Little Richard while they were on tour in England. And when he was 23, he was in England with um, Ray Charles. And the Beatles were slowly breaking up when George Harrison invited Billy Preston in the studio, who was a keyboardist, uh, would go on to win Grammys. Uh, just to look him up on Google, amazing uh, musician. Um, but he he had once put out this self-titled record and it looked very New Year's Eve. And then I thought, you know, um, as I'm putting together his history for, you know, this post on that morning, I thought that um, I should do more. That, you know, since I, you know, have this talent for digging for history, you know, why not dig for GLBTQ black history? Because, you know, that's what Billy Preston was, and he was black. And since then, I've been digging and digging and digging for queer black history with more thinking that if I had not been permitted at one point in time to do anything other than white cultural stuff, you know, as a gay person, that now on Instagram and, and Facebook, I could choose who I wanted to report on. And I also mentioned that I wanted to contribute to the Black Lives Matter movement. And at that point in time, I, I didn't know who had started the movement. I just assumed it was, you know, some guys or something. And, you know, during 2015 discovered that uh, Alicia Garza and Patrice Con Colors had been the two that, you know, were at the very beginning of it and then drew in, you know, Opal Toma Tai or Tay? I always pronounce her last name wrong. But that it was two lesbians that had started, you know, they started the whole thing. And so... Mm -hmm. I was just like, oh my God, this is like, I didn't know. And this, the fact that I'm resonating with something that has stretch, such a queer presence to it as well. I mean, so many gay men, uh, lesbians, trans women are involved in Black Lives Matter. Uh, just amazing. So many really interesting people. In fact, on the Academy Awards this last weekend, um, Andra Day and Common uh, did a song from the mo a movie about... Um, the the Supreme Court Justice uh, Thurgood Marshall. Yes. And on the stage, uh, there were ten activists. Um, one of them was a Michelle Miao guest, recent Michelle Miao guest. Uh, the wonderful Dolores Huerta was up on the stage. Oh, I loved I loved what she wore and yeah. how she got ready for the the evening. It was great. And also Patrice Con Colors was up on the stage and uh, a writer. Uh, transgender writer, uh, African-American Janet Mock was up on the stage as well. And just a really interesting group of people representing 
social change. I mean, the Academy Awards could have presented it better because when I was watching, I had no clue what I was looking at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, right. So on that note, I mean, we're talking about changes through the LGBTQ movement and even looking through history and not knowing as much as you do, you know a whole lot. There were many LGBTQ people um, ethnically diverse and and a part of you know the complex and diverse community that we have as far as sexual orientation, gender identity. Now it sounds like we're having this conversation more and more and more regarding social justice and the you know intersectionality of it all. And then at the same time, there is a bigger platform for these voices and society, social media, the media is taking some of these voices a lot more seriously. So my question to you is when you referred back to being gay as a, a white thing, you know, how do you feel about it today? Well, um, and today there are lots of different, you know, ways of describing people. And so, you know, it, when Peter Adair started working on Word is Out, for instance, you know, he understood at that point in time, more so I think than now, um, that he as a gay man, and just simply as a man, would have difficulties going into uh, the lesbian community. And so he, I think that's what kind of started him thinking outside of, you know, just simply being the director by himself, perhaps. Um, I'd, I'd have to talk to Rob Epstein or somebody to know if this is correct. But I, I do know from some studying of it that Nancy Adair's sister, you know, was deployed to go into the women's community, the lesbian community, uh, because she was a woman. And she would have, you know, she wouldn't have face the resistance at the time. And they're, you know, from watching... When we rise, the Gus Van Sant, uh, Dustin Lance Black, Cleve Jones thing about San Francisco, you know, when Cleve was trying to get support, you know, for to get Harvey Milk elected and stuff, and going into lesbian bars and being kicked out of the lesbian bars, you know, we did need to somehow build bridges, which at one point didn't exist because you know, on Castro Street and other streets, Polk Street. If you were a female and tried to get in, you couldn't get in. And so, yeah, I'd be pissed off if I was a lesbian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think what I'm getting at is, I mean, and a great point about When We Rise and the Cleve Jones story is that much of LGBTQ history in mainstream media has been primarily focused on a cisgender, white, gay male's narrative. And, and you know, we've focused a whole lot on some of these uh, iconic or heroic uh, voices of our community, which is part of our history. But a lot of it, a lot of it is also white, cis, male, gay voices. And not that, you know, LGBTQ gay people didn't exist in the 70s and the 80s. Obviously, we know they've existed um, in, in, all throughout time. But there is a primary focus now in making sure that those voices are elevated and platformed with the help of social media. So some people look at it like the time is now. Some people look at it like voices have been erased and purposely ignored. 
I'd love to hear from you as a white cisgender gay male who celebrates uh, the black queer community in our community, fighting for the black queer community in a lot of ways, in how even for yourself, you've changed the narrative as it applies to LGBTQ history and the movement. Um, well, I mean, there's there's certainly a lot more opportunities, you know, for voices to be heard. And sometimes um, there was, uh, you know, a moment uh, when I went to see Alicia Garza, uh, the woman that is kind of human being number one in Black Lives Matter uh, at the Commonwealth Club. And um, I, I went up and I wanted to talk to her and I was like, oh my God, this is like one of my heroes. But it wasn't a room full of just white people. It was a room full of mostly, you know, queer black people. And, you know, I, I thought, you know, that I shouldn't interfere, that it was their moment, that here's this wonderful evening of these four really incredible, you know, queer black people. Arya Saeed was up there, a transgendered local activist. Um, there was um, Darnell Moore, a black gay man. And um, the incredible Barbara Smith, right? And which, which uh, a lot of people don't know, but I curated that program. Yeah, that was so good. Yeah, and yeah. and and at, the, and at the end, I, I approached uh, Barbara Smith because I wanted to say, you know, wow, you're so cool. And before I had a chance to do this, uh, a young person whose name I believe is Leo. Um, mm-hmm. Am I correct? Uh, it, this? Was oh. that the the poet yeah, that we began yeah, with? Yeah. yeah. And Leo is just so cool. And Leo walks up, and Leo was maybe seventeen, uh, trans man, and uh, did this wonderful performance, which you can, you know, look that up on Google uh, through YouTube. Uh, you can watch the whole thing; it's incredible. Uh, but when I went up to say something to, to Barbara Smith, uh, Leo kind of pushed in his event, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I just kind of stopped and and allowed Leo and Barbara Smith, uh, you know, a a, a uh, an older lesbian feminist author of great experience speak to each other. And Leo asked for some advice from her. You know, I'm new to writing. What kind of advice can you give me? And and uh, Barbara said to Leo, read, 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 and read more. And she said. I'm, I'll get a piece of paper and a, and a pen and I'll, and I'll write down some books that you should read. And I blurted out two names. I said, you should read Essex Hemphill, a black gay poet, and Marlon Riggs, also a poet and, and a phenomenal filmmaker uh, that was making films at a certain point. You've got to read those two people. And Leo glared at me. Because Leo had not asked the advice of a cisgendered <laughs> white gay male, you know, for advice, and you know, as soon as I, 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 that popped out of my mouth, I was like, "Oh!" And then Leo was glaring at me, like trying to turn me into like stone or something. And then Barbara Smith, watching it from the you know where she was sitting up above us, you know, just leaned forward and said, "He's right." those two people are essential. Those two black writers, you have to read them. And she put down on the piece of paper 
their names along with Audre Lorde's name and I forget the rest of the names, but and a certain book by um, about Essex Hemphill and a guy named Michael Callan. Uh, Callan was a white gay singer and Essex a black gay poet. And this book contrasted what it was like to be black with AIDS or be white with AIDS and how the whole system was centered really to help people who were white gay males with AIDS and really nobody else. That, you know, if you happen to be somebody else, you had to figure it out on your own. Um, I even once recommended, I'm very proud of this moment, of a friend of mine that told me that after the earthquake in 1989 that he had found out that he was HIV positive. And so I suggested there was a, uh, a newsletter that we had in our house. I was dating the, the gentleman from Hawaii at the time, from GAPA. And I said, you know, you might be interested as a person of Japanese descent, you know, born in America, maybe going to a support group for gay Asian men as opposed to something that is less about you. And maybe they might have something to say t- to you. Um, this man ended up working for their AIDS initiative that turned into the APLA. Is that the the right term? The gay Asian AIDS thing that developed. Um, But it had been with GAPA. They had to separate it from GAPA so they could get federal funding. And then eventually... (laughs) You are a chihuahua companion. (laughs) Eventually, I was down in Los Angeles and and went to get HIV tested at one point. Um, I am HIV negative still. and I came around a corner and found a poster with Padley Bell on it and that friend of mine. Wow. wow. So I had pushed him towards something and he ended up helping other folks who were HIV positive and, and of different Asiatic descents and then ended up on a poster with the wonderful singer Patti LaBelle. <laughs> so what I'm hearing, you know, kind of the, you answering my question about being a cisgender gay white male in today's time uh, as far as the LGBTQ movement is that you've really understood it, it's, as far as like you yourself and your values, what you care about, that in today's time you are an ally. Uh, some of these issues that we're now talking about such as police brutality, such as poverty, such as economic inequality, such as um, all these things, you know, really play on racial discrimination um, as well as gender inequality. Some of the most marginalized and and vulnerable of our community who had not been so included uh, as far as the movement's narrative. And that's now taking place. So what I'm hearing is that you're comfortable as an ally like you yourself you know part of the liberation movement now have moved into allyship is that right yeah and and plus two um there um i recently met in coal valley a young gentleman a 17 year old heterosexual uh male um he was in a coffee shop and we talked for quite a while on my front step in my apartment building and Recently, I'm bringing this up because I've seen something on Facebook in which someone was raising the point about how young people aren't listening to older people and that, you know, we might benefit them if they listen to us because of all of years of experience. But 
I was listening to him. And as I listened to him, I mean, he was listening to me as well, but as I listened to him as well, um, one of the things he brought up was that he mentioned uh, a, uh, a performer, uh, recording artist named Logic, who I'd never heard of before. And I was like, I don't know who that is, but I'll look up who that is. And looked up his name, and the first thing I found was his suicide uh, prevention hotline song, the 1-800-SUICIDE-PREVENTION-HOTLINE-TITLED mm-hmm. song with John Cheadle uh, and um, Matthew Modine and the gay storyline. And then he went on to do it at the Grammys or the VMAs where that number was literally everywhere. And so to me, it's, it's you know, I think when people who are my age complain about people not listening to them, okay, but you also need to listen to these young people too because you can really learn lots of really cool stuff yeah yeah i feel you on that and i feel like we've somewhat i don't know i can't tell if it's social media if it's the media in general if it's because donald trump has become president or caitlin jenner decided to you know self-profess herself as the transgender voice i think all of that combined make us all feel like we are not you know, a part of one fabric. Uh, We are really different in the LGBTQ community, but there's that part that's missing and sometimes there's just the compassion and the willingness to hear each other out. I'm going to take a quick short break, but I'm enjoying this conversation so much. Normally or traditionally, we will let our first guest go, but there's so many more questions I want to ask Bruce. Um, This is actually the first time he's been a, a, a main guest on the program, so... Don't go away. I, you know, you can tell this conversation is very important. We ourselves are having a cross-generational conversation, and we ourselves are having a multicultural, uh, and, uh, and I would say part of the entire LGBTQLMNOP spectrum conversation that's happening right now. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. 
and that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Welcome back to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Meow, your host, our special guest in studio, in the tune-in studios, that is. Broadcasted on uh, Progressive Voices is Bruce Bodet. He is a cultural icon here in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's part of the LGBTQ community. He's an encyclopedia, a history book, and a Chihuahua companion. Um, I love his Instagram handle, which is just his name, Bruce Bodet, and and uh, you can spell it if you want. <laughs> B E A U D E T T E. Bruce yeah. Bodet. You got to follow him, and the reason why is because it's not just about him, but he includes so much great information about our community and our history, the arts, music. He's just a really, really cool, interesting guy. Um, Bruce, right before the break, you know, we were starting to talk about. Uh, just where we're at with our movement and being an ally, uh, you yourself as a cis gay white male understanding, you know, kind of what your role is today. And at the same time, wanting to share and willing to listen to someone who not who might not be part of your generation or somebody who might not even be the same gender or sex or um, ethnicity. Um, so a couple more questions I want to ask you as we wind down. Uh, in the next couple of segments here, in when we rises um, the uh, miniseries, which aired on ABC, and it's a story uh, with the uh, it's Cleve Jones's narrative, you know, in this very particular specific time in San Francisco LGBT history, um, and uh, produced by Gus Van Sant, written by Dustin Lance Black, and many other contributors. But there was a particular scene that uh, I really. Now, I remember, Sorry. I'll interject here a little bit yeah, for a yeah. second, just to, to give a little bit of information. The, the book by Cleve Jones is his voice and yes. his narrative. Um, he was at the home of Dustin Lance Black in Los Angeles working on the book. Um, Dustin's a great writer. I would assume maybe getting some help as, mm-hmm. you know, writing help. Um, at the same time, um, Dustin Lance Black and Gus Van Sant had a had heard that ABC TV wanted to produce something with queer content, mm-hmm. and uh, he decided to work on an eight-hour miniseries. And whereas, you know, uh, you know, it's 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 kind of sort of Cleve Jones's memoir. So yeah. It's, so it's about him, and you know, he's the yeah. you know the centerpiece of that, and the people that intersect with his life. But the TV show was different in the fact that it wasn't just about Cleve Jones. I mean, it was about, you know, uh, other folks from San Francisco. And blessedly, you know, they had paid attention to something which sometimes people don't pay attention to. See, I I smile because I actually disagree a little bit. I actually do think that 
Um, I think that, yes, you're right about the storylines intersecting with other community activists. And I think that they did a really good job in trying to diversify the voices and the stories that they were trying to tell. But at the end, my impression, at least as a queer woman of color in walking out of the Castro Theater at, at its premiere was uh, was that, you know, this this that, that it was it was focused and centered on Cleve Jones's experience during that time with with some of these so so what i'm saying is that there was a primary focus on him being the lead voice um, yeah yeah uh, yeah i'm not going to object with that but i mean the book was only basically about his voice right yeah Where, whereas you know I, I i think that like with the movie stonewall by uh the gentleman that directed independence day mm-hmm. uh, whose name i'm forgetting at the moment um, uh Roland Emmerich. There we go. Yeah. Roland Emmerich. Um, Roland Emmerich uh, got the history right. I mean, if you read about Stonewall, he literally got the history right. I mean, apart from making a fictional character up about being the lead character and throwing some perhaps fictional brick or not. Um, but the Stonewall Inn literally was a bar for young white gay men. Uh, both Marsha P. Johnson and and Sylvia Rivera both say that. They say, you know, that wasn't a trans bar or a drag bar. That wasn't a bar for people of color. That was a bar for young white males. Um, but where Emmerich got it wrong, so so distinctly and profoundly wrong, was that, you know, he's not making a movie in 1969 or 1975 or whatever. He's making a movie in, you know, 2016, 17, I think it was 16. Mm-hmm. And... Instead of acknowledging the zeitgeist of the moment, we needing to listen to other voices, needing different stories. So history does put Marsha P. Johnson inside of the bar. Marsha P. Johnson states that Sylvia Rivera was off in a park nearby, sleeping off a heroin fix. She wasn't even in the bar. Um, And then Stormy, and I can't remember her last name, but a drag king was in the bar, and she's described historically as being as it be the brick thrower. She didn't throw any bricks. Uh, Stormy was put into a police car. Apparently, they had crappy police cars back then, and she got out of the police car. They put her back into the police car. She got back out of the police car. Now, Stormy was a, a, a African American drag king, you know, way back in the '60s. And Stormy got out of the car the second time. They put her into the car the third time. And as this was happening, she turned to all the people standing around. And a large crowd had, had assembled by this point. And she started saying to the crowd, do something. You're all just standing there doing nothing. Do something. You know, we need to start doing something. And then people mm-hmm. responded to her call to do this thing. Now, if Roland Emmerich had, instead of you know, telling a white story, again, boring, if he had, you know, put the story around Marsha P. Johnson or around Stormy and then, you know, included all those young white guys that, you know, it was their bar. I mean, read the history. That is the actual factual history, not the mythology that, you know, even I embraced at one time that it was a drag bar or whatever. Um, It was a mafia-ran bar for white gay men. Um, the police went there to mess with the mafia owners of the bar. You know, we got pulled into it. But 
Emmerich messed up because he made it a white-centric film. And When We Rise didn't go there. Sure, no. Cleve Jones was a center voice, but I didn't get as much of the wonderful Ken Jones Exactly. In the book. I didn't get as much as the wonderful Cecilia Chung right. in the book. Yeah. Roma Guy and her partner, Dion Jones. I didn't get all of that in the book. I just got Cleve Jones, whose story is wonderful. And I loved reading the book and I love having him as my friend. But now exactly. I like having Cecilia yeah. Chung as a friend and Roma Guy as a friend and Ken Jones as a friend. Well, you know, before I met Cleve Jones, I met Cecilia Chung. Mm. And actually, Cecilia Chung was the first guest on the program when we launched uh, officially. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it's, it's 2005. <laughs> and, and of course, I met Ken through um, the When We Rise cast. But when I tried to go look in, for other information about Ken Jones, I couldn't find it. And that was... <laughs> You know, really uh, appalling for me and really sad. And I really felt like, just like you, I wanted to hear more of their storylines, which once you're able to hear it from their mouths, it's just so important because these issues keep coming up um, every year and, and so many decades have passed. But what I was actually going to ask you was a scene that was profound for me, and I can't, I can't forget it, which was... Uh, uh, a Cleve Jones uh, towards the I think the end of the series um, in speaking to a journalist asking you know the journalist what it meant to be a part of a generation that had no purpose do you remember that he's smoking a cigarette and he's one of I know <laughs> he has smoked lots of cigarettes in that miniseries but uh, he's older now he's an older Cleve Jones and he's he's being interviewed by some journalists um, and, and they're just, it's just them. The scene is just them too. And, and he, he, that, that particular scene ends with Cleve asking the journalist, um, you know, what does it mean to be a part of a generation that has no purpose? So I'm just curious to hear, you know, what other people's reaction to that scene is. I don't know if you remember it. Well, I'm, I'm not thinking of the scene itself, but, um, I, I do sometimes run into people that seem, you know, very comfortable in the fact that in San Francisco, you know, sexually active people can take um, Truvada and not become HIV infected. And so AIDS is going to be gone. It's going to be gone. It's, it's now no longer a problem on the planet Earth because gay people in San Francisco have Truvada. Okay, well, unless gay people in Zimbabwe or Ghana have Truvada, Unless gay people in Nepal have Nevada, you know, Truvada, unless you know everybody can, has the same access to care and equal rights everywhere on the planet. So, you know, if if a person in Russia, you know, is facing you know, prison time, or in Uganda, or in Jamaica, or you know, or might be hung in Egypt, or you know, as long as there's problems on this planet, you know. Uh, there's always something to do. I mean, if for some reason everyone just suddenly received equality on the planet and, you know, could stay healthy and be housed and, you know, all the things would go away, then, yeah, then then I would take a vacation. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Michelle Miao Show. You can catch all our shows on Progressive Voices at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time and then Sundays at noon. 
If you ever miss it, you can head to michellemeow.com on Thursdays. We're at the Commonwealth Club at noon this time. This is so cool. So if you're in the Bay Area and you're a member of the Commonwealth Club, you can come to a free program to hear us uh, do these interviews in, in person, which is really awesome. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices.